Father, we come before you. We wish to sit at your feet. We wish to learn from you. Uh, discovering things in your word is a pleasure. It is a joy. But we know it is also vital for our walk. And we ask as we finish up your Ten Commandments that they would be real to us, that we would implement them, that we would not resist as far as it remains our responsibility. We know that you are capable of working in our lives, and we ask that you would do that, Lord. But we ask for all of these things that they would glorify you. And may that be our one concern, our one desire. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through the law. Uh, We've covered the first several commandments. Uh, The first commandment is have no other gods before me, and God declares how he is to be worshipped and who he is. Secondly, we're not to make any graven image, and we know that that means idols, and we're not supposed to have any idols whatsoever. And as I've said before, the idols are not to be fashioned by hand or purchased in a store or even a family member, a spouse, a relative, a friend, any of that. None of that is supposed to be an idol in our lives. And we're not supposed to take God's name in vain. And by the way, um, on that, you know, I gave you all those euphemisms. I have this sheet up here with all the euphemisms on it. If somebody wants it, you can come get it, okay? I'm going to just leave it up here on the pulpit. And you know, it's, it's interesting with that. Once you talk about the euphemisms for God, people, there's like one of three reactions. People are astonished that they've been using all these euphemisms for all this time and they have no idea whatsoever. Then there's another person that just says, Really? That's not what I mean. I'm going to use it anyhow. And they use it anyhow. You know, and you can do what you want. It's between you and God. It is not my job as the pastor to pull out the big shepherd's crook and the rod and just start beating up the sheep. That's not my job. My job is just to point out what's going on. And so whether it's ambivalence or whether it's complete acceptance, like I'm going to do this, this is good, I need to write this down in my Bible and make sure I never repeat this stuff, that's wonderful. Or if you are simply rebellious in it, you know, it's your relationship with God and your witness in the world. So you can choose to do what you like, but I would encourage you to follow the ways of the Lord and try to make sure we master, all of us, we master our speech. Then there is also, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and that doesn't mean going to church on Sunday, although God says to do that in the New Testament. He says, do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren, as is the habit of some. And when we don't do that, we are committing a sin. You know, when God says do something and we say, no, I'm not going to do it, then it is a sin. It's, but it's also not a yoke. I have to go to church. No, I get to go to church. That's what I get to do. And it's a, it's a matter of changing our mentality. Uh, maybe you can relate to this more with work. Oh, I have to go to work. No, I get to go to work. God has provided for me a job. I get to work with my two hands. I get to use my brain, push a pencil, whatever it is. I get excited about that. I get to be productive. Would you rather be stuck in a chair? 
watching television or listening to the radio and not able to do anything? Ah, it's a blessing to be able to do these things. So the Sabbath day, we have entered into our Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. It's the only one we're not commanded to keep in the New Testament because we are keeping it as long as we've obtained or received salvation from Jesus Christ himself. Then honor your mother and father, and we all know what that means both while they're living and after they have passed. We're not to do that, and with that is a promise that we'll have a long life. We're not supposed to murder. Again, this is not kill, but we're not supposed to premeditatively take a life of another individual. Uh, That life has been created, a human being life has been created in the image of God, and we are to consider that something that is holy. Then, I talked about last week, do not commit adultery. And that was more of a tough message, not only to deliver, because I know the ramifications of it but for me to go through it and see my guilt and then give it to you and have you share the guilt and then to walk away like what are we supposed to do now with this there's a question that always comes up that I want to address this will be like the part two of the adultery just a little bit and that is if you divorce and remarry The Bible says you commit adultery. Does that adultery go on in perpetuity? Are you in adultery, in the present tense, in the actual committing of it every single time in your second marriage or your third marriage or your fourth marriage? I've heard this come up on the radio. I've heard it come up when I've talked about this before. It came up last week, and so I am going to address this. And we must understand that we have all fallen short of this command. There's no question about it. And God goes on to say in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that if you lusteth after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery already. And if you do a study on that, it's anything that deals with sexual deviancy from the scriptural mandate which is one man, one woman in marriage forever until death do you part. No test drives. That's what God says. Now with this idea, can you live perpetually in adultery? Or in other words, if someone divorces a first spouse and marries another, do they commit adultery in an ongoing fashion as long as they remain married to the second spouse? Is the solution to divorce a second spouse and remarry, or divorce your second spouse and remarry your first spouse if possible. Now, I want to tell you, a Bible teacher that I grew up with, that was on the radio, that we've actually had him speak at a couple's retreat. Uh, He came in and just a wonderful Bible teacher. I heard him on the radio say to a, a woman who had married a second time that she was to divorce her second husband and be reconciled to the first. And even if the other spouse had been married, the other husband had been married again, he was to divorce his spouse, and the two were to become one again. Now, in the Old Testament, that was prohibited. If you divorced a woman, you were not able to remarry her again. That was it. You were done. In the New Testament, that doesn't apply. I know people who have done that. Mike McIntosh did that. Mike McIntosh divorced his wife, Sandy. Then he became of sober mind, so to speak, and he remarried Sandy. 
and they lived happily ever after. They are living happily ever after. And so this idea of divorcing and remarrying, it's just not a good path to go down. But I want to get you, give you some actual points on this so that you can go away with a solid foundation. Now, to also give you an idea how this is believed, this one website, I'm going to quote to you this website. It says, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus taught that anyone who divorces his companion without her having been unfaithful is committing adultery. The force of the form committeth adultery, and it has in parentheses a Greek present tense, is this. The offender keeps on committing adultery. So did you catch that? If the person marries a second time, they live perpetually in a state of adultery. I'm going to tell you right up front, that is not the case. I want to make sure that all of a sudden people try to find a way to get out of a second marriage. I want to tell you, do not do that. Or a third marriage, or however many marriages you are in. And there's reasons for this scripturally. How do you, and people get caught up in this. They say, well, what am I supposed to do to free myself from living perpetually in ongoing adultery? What am I supposed to do? How do I reconcile this? First of all, Scripture says that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. If somebody is an adulterer, they do not go to heaven. Same thing with somebody who is an idolater, somebody who is a male prostitute, somebody who is a homosexual offender. And in the context of this verse, it says, do not be deceived. In other words, there are people that live like this in perpetuity, and they think they're going to heaven. And God says, you are deceived because you think this is okay, and God will forgive you. There's a whole lot of people who consider themselves Christians that live in such a way where they would need to ask God for forgiveness, but they say, it's okay, God will forgive me. God says, do not be deceived. You will not be forgiven. There is no genuine conversion that has taken place. Remember I told you what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, those who believe are obedient. The disobedient do not believe. And so if you have a true faith in Christ, you will slowly be transformed. And it takes the rest of your life to transform you. That's why God gives you time most of the time. Because he has, it's, it's like the baking of bread, right? God even used the evil things in our lives to raise us up. Just like God uses yeast in bread that decays and raises up the bread. And when that raises up, God takes the bread and he gives it to other people. In other words, your life raises, even though there is evil in your life, and you're not supposed to say, well, the more evil then I need to become a bigger loaf. No, that's not the case. Should we sin that the grace of God should much more abound? God forbid that we should do such a thing. It says that in the book of Romans. And so it, it definitely tells us that the adulterer, the male prostitute, the, the greedy, everyone that lives perpetually in a sin that they need to repent of and don't, the conversion hasn't taken place. That's what's clear in Scripture. Because those who believe will be obedient. Now, I'm not talking also 
about the person that says, you know, I'm trying. I, I, I know it's wrong and I can't change. I feel like I'm stuck. Galatians 6.1 says, there are those believers who get caught in a sin and they know that it's wrong. And those who are spiritual are supposed to restore them. That's not who I'm talking about. The person I'm talking about that says, God forgives me. If this is no longer a sin. I can do what I want because God is an all-loving God and he doesn't send anybody to hell. And that's just all a lie. That is a lie from the pit. God wants us to be made in his image. And so to do that, we have to live a life of sacrifice. Now, who loves that message? Yeah, you get to wake up today and sacrifice for yourself and for God. Because then you're going to be more holy. That's right. You can have self-control by the Holy Spirit. You cannot eat as much. You cannot spend as much. You cannot drive as fast. You cannot be in excess as much. And it's just like, great, just what I want to do. And what does the world say? Go ahead. Just eat as much as you want. Drive as fast as you want. Get the most expensive car, the most expensive house. Just have it all, right? It's all yours. I did it my way. You know That type of thing. That's the world. That is not God. And you say, well, why am I sacrificing all of this? Because we are storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. This life is going to end. And for some of us, it could end today. For some of us, it could end 50 years from now. We don't know. But we're preparing for the next life. That's what we're doing. That's why God says, do this here, and you'll have great reward in the next life, which lasts forever. This one does not last forever so when scripture says these people are not going to heaven that call the sin okay they're not they are deceived okay first corinthians 6 9 and you can read that write that down and i'm going to encourage you to go through the context of that secondly if you divorce the second spouse it breaks the commandment not to divorce now if a pastor tells somebody to divorce your second spouse he is asking them to commit a sin because 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 27 says, you are not to get a divorce. If you violate that, then you sin. So at no time are you to get a divorce. If you're in a marriage right now, stay in the marriage. If you don't think you like the marriage, separate. But do not remarry. Just separate. That's what scripture says. And now see, when I say that, I feel it in my flesh. What do you mean? I can't remarry. Well, you can remarry. God says, I'm not going to violate your free will. You can do whatever you want. But does that violate God's commandment? Yes. And you see, it's all about our will going, all right, I'm going to submit my will to God. I don't want to. And that's why it has to be crucified. Now, I know you guys have heard the Easter messages where Jesus has gone to the cross, he's crucified, he's pummeled, he's whipped, he's hung in the cross. They go to break his legs because then he wouldn't be able to breathe, push himself up to breathe, and it's just a horrible experience. And that's what we're supposed to do to the flesh. Now, who wants to hear that? I don't want to hear that. I don't want to deny myself. Why do I have to do that? But God says, just continue with this for a while and you'll be okay. It's like the athlete who works out and sweats and you see the grimacing on their face when they're pumping the iron and it's just grueling. Have you ever seen those pictures of the deadlifts where they take the massive weight and they get underneath it and they push it up and they're going, and then they throw it down and then they just fall over because they faint. Have you seen that? They do that all the time. They, they are willing to sacrifice their bodies in order to just push up some weight and that's it. 
You know, there's this thing called hitting the wall. I've done it once in my life where you expend so much energy in your body. Your body says to you, that's it. And it takes all the levers of power. It goes, doo, doo, and your body just goes, I'm going to sleep right now. And you just fall down and you want to pass out. That's the way it works. And you're doing that for what? Because you want to be tough? Because you want to exercise real heartily? And we're not even willing to do that for Christ. You see how much we're willing to put into the flesh? But we're not willing to put in the spirit. And when I say we're or you or it's me too. It's all of us. We're all in this same boat together. So digressing here. If we divorce a second spouse, it breaks the commandment not to divorce. And we don't want to do that. Thirdly. Puts the believer in a state of condemnation if they don't seek a divorce. You see, somebody who would tell them, you need to seek a divorce and you don't do it because it breaks the commandment. If you live in that second or third or fourth marriage, then by some you are considered perpetually an adultery. So you have a choice. You divorce and commit a sin or you stay in the marriage and remain perpetually an adulterer or an adulteress. What a fun choice, right? And as Christians, we come along and say, yes, but scripture says you're perpetually in adultery, so you have to change that. And again, I want to tell you, that is false. But that is what is out there. It is being taught out there, and it does nothing but lead to condemnation. Now, if you think that you can do something to be right in God's eyes, to be justified in God's eyes, if you can do a work and he's going to say, ah, you're justified now, you're made right. Is that true according to scripture? It is not true according to scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And the reason you're getting a divorce because you have been taught you've been in a adulterous, perpetually in adultery, a relationship. And if you do that, you do not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you end the marriage, then you are no longer perpetually an adulterer and you get into heaven. And then first Corinthians chapter six, verse nine doesn't apply. Now, did you follow that? In other, I'm going to say it again. They would say, some would say, if you get the divorce, that's good because then you stop being the perpetual adulterer. Well, if you stop, or if you are a perpetual adulterer, you're not going to heaven according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 because you're believing a lie, right? You're, you're, well, you might say, well, no, I'm not believing the lie, but I still am. Well, adulterers don't go to heaven. And so if you divorce, then you think, well, now I get to go to heaven because I divorced, right? No, it doesn't work that way. That's not how scripture is spelled out. And we should never have this misunderstanding come up like this when scripture is so plain, it's so clear. And I'm going to summarize this in some simple statements when we get to the bottom. Fifthly, if you believe you shouldn't divorce because it's a sin and you are in a second or third marriage, you will remain perpetually condemned. For those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you want to say, no, you're condemned now because you're in a second marriage. I'm sorry. Well, Pull the brakes. You are not condemned because you're in a second marriage. God says there's no condemnation, which means you are not going to face judgment. As believers, we have passed over the judgment by the act of God's mercy. 
We are not going to stand before God, being those who believe, and be judged for our sins and sent to perdition, sent to hell. We're not going to do that. When we show up before God as believers in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it's verse 10, talks about the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. We get the reward from God. God says, you did these works, you visited me in prison, you helped the poor, you did all of these things, you were a good witness, you shed love abroad. It, it's wonderful, and here is your reward. Enter into your rest. And that's what God will tell us. Some will have more reward than others. Some will have no reward. Uh, Job talks about, in the book of Job, that talks about getting into heaven by the skin of your teeth. There is no skin on your teeth which means you get in, but no reward. Is that person going to be happy? Oh, yeah. They're still going to be happy there. They're just not going to have any reward. And we're supposed to be working for reward in heaven. How do you do that? By dying. Wait, how do I get rewarded by dying? You see how it's so contrary to the world? The world would say, no, you've got to work hard to get reward, and then you die. No, we don't do that. We die here and then get our reward. We don't get our reward and then die. So it's just reversed in God's economy. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this idea of adultery, I'm going to sum it up for you. As I've already said today, and I said last week a couple of times, God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman, no test drives, married for life until someone dies. That's it. That's the only time there is to be a sexual relationship take place. And I told you how difficult that is to even let you know what this says because I know so many divorces, so many relationships, so much fornication, so much lusting is going on out there. God knows too. And remember I told you the reason he's coming back is because to judge the world for one of the reasons is sexual immorality. And that was the number one on the list so to continue this context just to wrap it up marry once work it out if there are problems do not divorce secondly if you are in a second or third marriage do not divorce if you have sinned by divorcing your first spouse ask for forgiveness first john chapter 1 verse 9 says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and if you ask for forgiveness do not believe you remain in adultery perpetually you don't all sins can be forgiven except one and that is failing to believe in jesus as your lord and savior that's it every single other sin that you could ever possibly commit can be forgiven all you have to do is ask it's just a matter of the will okay so we're going to leave that commandment behind that i've exhausted that one we're going to go on to verse 15 in exodus chapter 20 you shall not steal now i I always like to do this and we've done this before how many in here have never stole anything paperclip pencil you name it anyone Go ahead, look around. Look at all the hands going up. (laughs) Everyone is guilty. 
Now, I could start saying, well, how much have you stolen? Let's put a dollar amount on that thing. And you can start raising, okay, have you gotten to a car yet? You know, have you stolen Grand Theft Auto? Have you done something like that? Or is it just something a little bit less? Is it a stereo system that you took? And, or was it just a little bit less than that? Something from a store, an article of clothing, you know, or a keychain or something like that from Disneyland. Have you stole something like that before in your life? All of us have. Right? And so we're all guilty. And we all, we know that when it belongs to somebody else, nobody has to tell us the commandment. It's not ours. Didn't your parents tell you that when you were young? It's not yours. You can't have it. No. And then you get upset as a little child and you throw a little temper tantrum. Let's go. And you grab, they grab you by the hand and you drag or get dragged out. That's this idea of do not steal. Now, stealing is taking ownership of something that you did not pay for or produce yourself. I'm going to say that again. Stealing is taking ownership of something that you did not pay for or produce yourself. Stealing can include failing to return something that is not yours. Have you ever had a neighbor come up and say, Hey, can I borrow your chainsaw? You never see the chainsaw again. John, you just told me about a surfboard. Three surfboards. Uh, yesterday we were out here working and correct me if I get this incorrect, but he knows a guy from high school. He came over and his, your dad said uh, to this guy when he said, can I borrow John surfboards? He took three surfboards and you never saw them again, right? He's going to a 50th reunion and he's going to see him. And so that is also stealing, where you get to borrow something and you never return it. It's always, and you, you probably have something at home that somebody left somewhere and you happen to take it and you say, I'm going to give it back. No, you stole it. That's, that's just confess it. You stole it. That's what you did. You're just as guilty as everybody else in here. That's what you've done. There's this active and passive stealing that can take place. Uh, a tool from your neighbor. What about... Have you stolen money from the IRS? You might say, well, how would I steal money from the IRS? They steal money from me. I don't steal money from them. In other words, do you ever cheat on your taxes? Well, the IRS doesn't need that. They get enough already as it is. Well, you cheat on your taxes. Who's not guilty of that? No, don't raise your hands. We don't want to do that. But you, you understand, how many people just love the IRS? Oh, they're so friendly down there. They call me up every once in a while. They send me love notes in the mail. It's all wonderful. I think everybody despises the IRS. Who says, I work for the IRS. Oh, it's such a great job. I, I don't think so. But we have this attitude with the IRS. They are despised, they are hated, and they deserve it. So I'm not going to declare as much. Are you stealing from the government? Yes, you are. You say, but it's unjust. It's unfair. Well, vote somebody in that won't raise your taxes. There's an election coming up. Let's go on. (laughs) What about... Books from family members, pencils, pens, perfume. You ever go into somebody's house and, oh, what's this? And you put it all over yourself? Did you ask? You know, all you have to do is ask. That's, it's simple like that. Uh, your place of employment. You know, if you take one paper clip 
Would God turn to you as a just God, always judging sin? Would he turn to you and say, okay, I'm going to let you off for the paperclip? No, he's not going to let you off for anything if you're in the world. Now, if you're a forgiven believer, he, he says, I've forgiven you of that sin. That sin has been covered over by the blood. What about stealing that can be non-physical? Time. I have always said, and I heard this when I was young, I would rather have somebody steal my possessions than my time. Because my possessions can be replaced. My time cannot. And if we have ever taken five minutes longer on a break, we are stealing from our employer. If we are not diligent to work every minute of the time we are at our desk, we are stealing from our employer. We are causing our employers to lose money. If you go to work and you chit-chat while you're working, you're causing your owner or the owner of the business, your boss, to lose money. And whether you are a federal employee, a state employee, a private employee, all of those things apply. And so we're not supposed to steal time. These are non-tangible, non-physical items. Also... Stealing can be against God. You might say, how have I stolen from God? Malachi chapter 3 verse 7 says, Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Now, I want to let you know, this section has been abused in relation to money in the church probably more than any other section. Because pastors will stand up there and say, does it not read that the floodgates of heaven will open for you if you just bring forward your $1,000 check and lay it on the altar? It's seed faith money. And they coerce people into giving beyond their means, believing that they're going to receive something physically in return in this life for what they give. Now, God may choose to do that. I'm not going to say that he doesn't. But to preach, that's the norm. I believe that is sin. So we are not to sit there and coerce people to give. Now, here, I don't know what your experience has been in your life with other churches. You know we don't formally receive an offering here. It's a faith ministry. If God wants it to survive, money is going to be in the agape box. If he doesn't want it to survive, well, praise the Lord, his will be done. And we'll close the doors and we'll go on somewhere else. But as long as God is providing, we know he wants us here. And so, okay, that's great. And so those people who are faithful, they're giving. But those people who are not faithful, I'm telling you, if, if we don't give individually, there is something wrong spiritually. I just went through this book. <clears throat> this book is called A Christian Atheist. Believers, are those who believe in Jesus Christ but live like he doesn't exist. It's written by Greg uh, Groeschel. Craig Groeschel. 
And I just went through it, and he considered himself a Christian atheist, and he had three points at the end of his book. The first one was, if you don't want to be a Christian atheist, number one, make sure you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. I mean, that's basic, right? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That's how we get into heaven. If we don't do that sincerely, we are not going to heaven. Now, if you have a question about sincerity, just ask yourself, are you obedient? If you're obedient, you're saved. Because God causes the fruit to come in your life. You don't have to work at it. All you have to do is show up. Now, if you're not showing up, what does it say? You're not being obedient. But if I don't go to church, you're telling me I'm not saved? No, look, you just work it out yourself. I'm just telling you what Scripture has to say. And I don't mean that in a condemnation type of way. I'm just saying examine yourself like Paul says to see if, in fact, you are in the faith. If you're in the faith, you're going to be producing fruit. You're going to be fellowshipping with the saints. I told you last week that if you're not fellowshipping with the saints, if you're not involved in worship, if you're not giving, I'll add that this week, if you're not doing those things, you are not part of the body of Christ. Because that's how God defines his body. And so if there's any question, well, am I saved then? I don't know. You ask God. Ask God to point it out. And if there's fruit, wow, hallelujah. And those people who have served well through their life, Paul, I think, is telling Timothy, I think it's in Timothy, where he says, those who have served well gain great assurance of their faith. In other words, those who don't serve well don't have much assurance at all. And so we want to make sure that we're living for Christ. That, That was the first point, that you give your life to Christ. The second point was that you are a giver that you actually give of your money. And not only your money, but your time too. But in this context, he's talking about money. And this idea of giving of money, it always comes up, well, how much do I give? Well, you decide. The Lord said the, in the Old Testament, a tithe, and I don't believe a tithe is for the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, a tithe was 10% of everything. But... That wasn't all you gave. It was 10% right off the top. Then it was 10% every three years to the priest and an additional 10% for the temple, which worked out to 23 and a third percent per year. And so you determine, and that's what's expected. Now, if you go beyond that, you're being generous, right? If you're below that, according to scripture, we are being stingy. And so we need to, somewhere, whether it's 10% or 23% or whatever, we got to be givers. However you work it out with God, you work it out. I don't want to know how you do that. All I'm doing is just telling you this is a sign of not being a Christian atheist. If you've confessed your sins to God, if you give to the church, and the third one, this third one is you surrender completely to God. Now, who wants to do that? Who wants to say, everything that is mine is yours. Wherever you tell me to go, I will go. Whatever you ask me to do, I will do. I will not put myself in front. I will not say no to any one of your requests. I will not say no to any one of your sacrifices. I will completely surrender my entire life. If you've done those three things, 
Hallelujah. You're walking the way the Lord wants you to walk. You're giving of your heart completely to him. Otherwise, as Craig would say in his book, you're walking the life of a Christian atheist. You really don't believe. Although you'll confess him, it really did not take. And so you want to make sure that it takes. Now, I I need to take a parenthetical thought here for a second. When I say that, people can come underneath this cloud of condemnation saying, I haven't done enough. I'm not good enough. Oh, the woe is me. Well, that's all true. Who can ever do enough? No one. No one can ever do enough. And so you, you don't have to be under that cloud of condemnation. But if you fall one time, are you getting back up? Okay, I'm going. I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm not doing this for myself. I didn't do it because Pastor Bill said to do it. I'm just doing it because I know God is working in me and I need to do it. I need to be in his word. I need to be fellowshipping. I need to be worshiping. I need to be giving. I need to be doing all of the things that he asked me to do. As much as I'm able, whenever the door opens, I just take advantage of that. I don't say no. If we're doing that, if we're just struggling forward, because it is a struggle, your flesh does not want you to do anything spiritual at all. Your flesh says, no, don't sleep in. Just don't do it. You need it for yourself. No, the Bible says, no, do it and not for yourself. Consider others better than yourself. So you get the picture here? You get the dichotomy? It's not the person who's trying that needs to fall under condemnation. It's the person that's not trying that needs to say, I need more assurance here. That's what we're supposed to do. So going on. Verse 16, you should not give false testimony against your neighbor, which means lie. Now, I know we have all lied, and it can take the form of bearing witness to anything that is not the truth. This can also be, secondly, a half-truth or an embellishment or prevarication. Now, prevarication is an evasion, a fudging, a fudging, a distortion, a misrepresentation. For instance, if you went hiking in the East County, and sometimes there are little streams that flow in the East County. You go out there, and the water's flowing, and it's about six inches deep, and there's a bubbling brook, and you're just going, wow, this is just wonderful. And you come back and you tell the story. You should have seen this raging river in the East County. It was just so magnificent, and the birds were coming down, and they were eating, and they were chirping, and one landed on my finger, and it was just the most beautiful sight. And this rainbow came out. and this, That's a total embellishment of what you saw in a muddy stream in the East County, right? So you don't want to embellish. You don't want to prevaricate. You don't want to try to be evasive. Politicians are great at being evasive. Did you or did you not lie? Well, you know, I don't think it's quite that simple to say something like that. You know what? I think we're just passing each other by when we're trying to explain things. And so this, these prevarications take place all the time. Just like your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's very hard to do that, I know, because sometimes it's self-incriminating. And somebody asks you a direct question. Well, if, if your answer starts with, well... Your answer should start with yes or no. That's the way God wants us to answer. Well, it's complicated. No, it's not complicated. You either did violate this or you didn't. So we don't want to bear false witness. We don't want to, we don't want to get involved in embellishment. We are only to speak the truth. I'm going to cut to the end here. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or 17, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In other words, you're not to covet. You're not to yearn. You're not to crave for. You're not to wish for. You're not to say, I really want this thing. I really want their life. I really want their stuff. Whatever they have is not going to satisfy. We should not have an inordinate or excessive desire for the stuff of others. Also, don't believe that stuff will satisfy our desire for pleasure because that's why we buy. I have had Christians tell me, well, I buy this because it makes me feel good. And that was a guy that told me that. Women, I know that it makes women feel good to buy things. It's like, we, I feel good, you know. We're not to do it for that reason. We're, we're not to covet anything that anybody else has. If the Lord provides something, well, be content with that. It's good. If you need something in your life, ask the Lord for it. He's the one that provides. He is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides everything. Now, with all of this, if you found that you've broken the Ten Commandments, and I want to assure you, we all have. If you found that and you've asked for forgiveness from Christ, it's wonderful. Just make sure you're not acting like a Christian atheist. Make sure you're fellowshipping. Make sure you're giving of your resources and your time. Make sure you're praying for others. Make sure you're becoming a disciple like Matthew says. If you do all those things, it's wonderful. You have great assurance. If you don't, maybe this is a call to turn around. That You know, Lord, I haven't been doing these things right. And I just want to make sure, though, that you don't walk away from this place under a cloud of condemnation because our God is a forgiving God. You know, if he was right behind me, you would see him with his arms stretched out saying, come on. It's okay. I know you've blown it. I know you've all blown it. Come on. Come on forward. It's all right. And I will heal you as long as you say, Lord, forgive me. That's all that's required. And so what we're going to do now, we're going to receive communion. And by the way, the, the way to have the Lord heal us spiritually, physically, all those things, is you just ask him. Say, Father, forgive me of my sins. Accept me as one of yours. I repent of my waywardness. I want to turn and get in the right position with you. If you say those things to the Lord, that's it. That's all that's required. He does the rest. You just get up in the morning and go forward with him. So now we're going to receive communion. What we're going to do as uh, the worship team comes up, we're going to play a song. And if you need to confess anything to the Lord, just confess it. If you need to ask him really to reassure you of your faith, just ask him to save you again if you're not quite sure. And as we do that, we remember the salvation that he brought to us by the receiving of communion. So as we sing this song, if you need to confess anything to God, just do it. And then we'll all receive communion together. After that, Eric will pray for us. So if you guys would come on forward.